It's easy to be in awe of you, Lord, as we are sensitive to the Spirit and as the Spirit of God makes you real to our hearts. And that's what we pray would continue to happen this morning. We are in awe of you. You are a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You guys can be seated. Hey, again, welcome Calvary Chapel. And those that you are visiting, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. This morning, Matthew, the third chapter. Again, Lord, we ask you to anoint your word. And now we're coming to words that are not words of men, but they're words that come from you, the living God. Every word of scripture inspired and breathed by you, profitable for doctrine and for uh, reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. So we pray that you'd anoint your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What about having a king? What about having a king on the earth? Not long ago, uh, my wife, who's an RN, was in a discussion with a doctor, a medical doctor here in the community, and they were just talking about the world's problems and problems that don't seem to have any kind of a solution at all for them. And this doctor shocked my wife when he made the suggestion and said, what we need is a benevolent dictator. Wow. What a suggestion. What about it? Is that a great suggestion? What kind of a suggestion is that? Well, I think to answer the question, we have to do a little history lesson here and go back to Israel. Israel, in their history, at one time, early on, wanted a king. Because they too were facing huge and insurmountable problems. The Ammonites were planning an attack, and they were brutal and violent people. The judge at the time, Samuel, was old and not able to continue his ministry for much longer, and his sons were corrupt and evil men who didn't know the Lord. So the future didn't look bright at all for them. And so what did they say? They said to Samuel, make us a king to judge us like all of the nations. And then they said, we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, that was their solution, and that was what they wanted. But the problem with a human king is that a human king is human. That was profound. You can write that down. The problem with a human king is that a human king is human. And being human is subject to all the weaknesses of being human. So Samuel the prophet, as was his duty, warned Israel about what would happen if they took on for themselves a human king. This is what Samuel warned them about. Samuel told them, he will take your sons... And the reason he would do that is for his army and for farming his land, for making weapons and so on. He said to them, this king will take your daughters to be perfumers for the king, for, to be cooks, to be bakers. Samuel warned them, he'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, uh, so that he could give them to his servants. 
Samuel said, He will take a tenth of your grain and your wine and grapes, also to give to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants, female servants, the finest young men and your donkeys, and he'll use them for his work, and he will take a tenth of your sheep. He will take, he will take, he will take, and then finally, and you will be his servants. He warned them about the perils and dangers of a human king. And what would the people do after all of this bondage and domination by this human king? The Lord told the people through Samuel, And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. And so was the history of Israel. They asked for a human king. The human kings that didn't walk with God did exactly what Samuel the prophet said that they would do. And they did cry out and the Lord didn't hear them. So Israel endured centuries of pain and frustration and evil due to the horrible leadership of evil men. Well, Israel's experience has been the human historical experience. Countries are ruined through inept and corrupt and ineffective leadership. States are ruined. Counties are ruined. Cities are ruined. Churches are ruined. Businesses are ruined. Associations suffer at the hands of men. The same is true of individuals. A bad king can ruin one's whole life. So the question is, who shall be your king? Who shall be my king? Because we all got to serve somebody. And we all have a king. But who will be that king? Who will really govern the affairs of our lives? Now in our text, we left off with John the Baptist, the forerunner of the king, the messenger announcing the coming of the king, John the Baptist. And Jesus, of course, is that king. What did John look like? What was his appearance? Well, he was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. What was his lifestyle? Well, he was preaching in the desert areas of Judea, and he was eating locusts and wild honey. What was his message? His message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as we read our text this morning, John has been preaching. John has been gathering a huge number of converts. Sinners have been coming out to John's baptism in droves. But an unexpected turn of events takes place in our text. We're reading in verse 13 of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
unexpected turn of events. Surprising. John the baptizer is now asked to baptize the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. John didn't expect that, that Jesus would come, his cousin Jesus, whom he had known since he was a little boy, a little baby. He hadn't expected that, that Jesus would come to be baptized by him. It seemed to John that there was a role reversal being asked of him by Jesus. I have need to be baptized by you, but you want me to baptize you? And he was no doubt surprised by this thing. He resisted it. John didn't want to go through with it. He didn't feel worthy to baptize Jesus. And there's a reason why he didn't feel worthy to baptize Jesus. Because Jesus had nothing to repent of, and that's what John's baptism had been. It had been a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. But here Jesus is coming, and he's never committed a sin in his entire life. He has nothing to repent of. And John is being asked to baptize him. A sinless one. Someone that he was aware of growing up as being sinless. And it didn't seem to be the right thing for John. And probably, if I'm accurate here in my guessing, John was overwhelmed by the prospect of baptizing Jesus. Why? Because he was in the presence not just of his cousin, not just of a human being. He was in the presence of Jesus Christ, the King, the sinless one, God himself in human flesh. And whenever anyone in the Bible is in the presence of God himself, there's great humility that results. There has to be. We are overwhelmed. Like Isaiah, we're undone. Like John, we fall at his feet like a dead man. Like Peter, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. There's just something about that encounter that drives us to our knees, drives us to be in a low place in our heart. We've just encountered the living God. We've just had an encounter with God himself. And this is too much for us. And there's an immediate introspection that takes place. we're, We're looking there at the Lord of glory. We're seeing him. We're aware of who he is. And then all of a sudden we didn't plan this. It wasn't something that had come into our mind previously. But all of a sudden, we're aware of ourselves. We're looking at him and then the next second we're looking within. And looking within we're saying, Oh, it's bad. It's bad. I mean, I'm a sinner. This is bad. He's perfect. I'm bad. He's perfect. I'm bad. That's the reaction every time. And I think John probably had that same kind of a reaction as he sees Jesus come to him, the sinless Son of God, who had never committed a sin, asking John that he might baptize him. But Jesus said to John, again in verse 15, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John 
we have to do this. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And so John, hearing that, allowed him. One of the questions, of course, that we have when we read this text is, what is the reason for Jesus' baptism? Why did he require John to baptize him? Now, Jesus gives a very simple answer and not immediately apparent what it really means. Uh, permitted to be so now for this is the way to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, let me try to wrap my head around that. What does that really mean? It seems almost cryptic. But there is a meaning to it, and it's a very important meaning. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, we can look at a few things that it accomplished. One thing that Jesus' baptism accomplished is that it validated John's ministry as a prophet. And that was a converse type of a thing as well, because John was a prophet, and John had proclaimed the coming of Jesus, And so when Jesus came and was baptized by John, and these things happened there at that baptism, that also, as a prophet, validated Jesus' ministry. So it sort of was working both ways. Jesus was validating John's ministry as a prophet, and John, as the accepted prophet, was validating Jesus' ministry as Messiah. But the reason Jesus gave is that this fulfilled all righteousness. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Not that the act of baptism actually fulfilled all righteousness, but it was a necessary part of fulfilling all righteousness. There were many things left to do in Jesus' life to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be tempted, which is the next chapter, or tested by the devil and pass that test. He had to continue in his public ministry in complete dependence upon his Father. And then he had to be willing to go to the cross at Calvary and suffer a horrible death in order that the sins of the world could be paid for. And then he had to rise from the dead three days later. And then he had to ascend into heaven and be exalted at the right hand of his Father. And when all of those things happened, then all righteousness was fulfilled. But this was an important part of it. Because without this, the rest of it couldn't have happened. What was Jesus doing when he was being baptized by John? He was actually identifying with us. He was identifying with us as a sinner. He wasn't a sinner, and he had committed no sin, yet he was already starting to identify with us in our sin. At Calvary, we know from 2 Corinthians 5.21, he actually became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became the sin-bearing sacrifice that bore all of the sins of every human being that would ever be committed for all time. He became sin for us. That's what happened at Calvary. But here, already, he's starting that identification. He's identifying with us. He didn't need to be baptized, but he was willing to take the lowest possible place to get where we are. We're all sinners. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have need of forgiveness. We all owe a great debt to God and to heaven. And we can never pay that debt back in a million lifetimes. We could never be good enough to merit God's favor. 
These are the facts of the matter. And Jesus became what we are. So that one day we could become what he is. He identified with us. So his baptism is fully identifying with those he came to save. I read a comment by one commentator that said, Jesus' baptism was his example of identification with us as sinners. And I read that statement and I said, no, that's not enough. It's not enough to just say that his baptism was an example of his identification with us. We have to go further than that. He was actually identifying with us. He was beginning to take sin upon himself, which he could only ultimately do at the cross, but he was beginning to now. What does the prophecy of Isaiah say? It says that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And that we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid upon him the guilt of all of us. He was beginning to assume that guilt. He was beginning to assume that identification. He was willing to be seen as a sinner. Maybe this is one of the reasons why when they did what they did to him and said what they said to him and treated him the way they treated him, he didn't respond. Because he had already taken upon himself the posture and the position of a sinner, even though he wasn't one. He took upon your sin, he took upon my sin. This identification is so profound. What it says to us not only has to do with our relationship with God and the guilt of our sin and the removal of the guilt of our sin, but it has to do with God's fixed attitude and relationship to us. What is it? Well, he's with us. He's come, he's come right down into the hole that we were in to rescue us. Now, he doesn't always rescue us out of every hole that we're in, but he'll come into every hole that we're in in order that his presence will rescue us. A lot of times that's what we think of God is that He's sort of like the genie inside of Aladdin's lamp. Pray enough, read enough Bible, be good enough, hope enough, wish enough, have high enough expectations of God, and maybe my life will be pain and trouble free, and there'll never be any issues, never any drama. Well, that's not a biblical view of God. But what is a biblical view of God is that in the middle of our issues, and in the middle of our drama, in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our struggles, and the things that happen to all of us, He's with us and for us. He's fully identified with us. And that's great. And sometimes He rescues us from the different holes that we're in. He'll heal a sickness. He'll heal a disease. He'll heal a marriage, he'll fix a situation, he'll provide an abundance of money and resources, he'll do this, he'll do that. But not always. But he's always with us in it. He's always with us in it. And he wants us to learn to trust him in the process. So Jesus was baptized in order that he might fully identify with those that he had come to save, and even begin the process of taking upon himself our sinfulness. 
Now, there's something I think that's important for us also to understand here. In the same way that Jesus fully identified with us in his baptism, we also fully identify with him when we're baptized. That's the meaning of water baptism. Jesus went down into the water, and he was baptized there in an act of full immersion baptism. Every inch of his body was covered with water. Fully identifying with us. When we go down into the waters of baptism, it's the same idea. We fully identify with him. And when he came up out of the waters of baptism, picturing the resurrection, so also we in Christ come up out of the waters of baptism, identified with his resurrection, raised with him. That's why baptism is so important for the believer. To submit to water baptism. To obey God's command there to be baptized and believe the gospel. Because that's the chief way that we initially identify with Jesus as he was not ashamed to identify with us. And another purpose for Jesus' baptism isn't stated implicitly as a purpose for Jesus' baptism, but it's obvious in the text. This passage illustrates and presents the Trinity for the first time in the New Testament. It's an awesome, awesome picture. You've got the voice from heaven, which is the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We've got the Spirit of God coming down upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And of course, we've got Jesus himself. We've got God the Father speaking. We've got God the Son being baptized. And we've got God the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus in the form of a dove. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the one God appearing in the same context at the same event here in the baptism of Jesus. It's an awesome, an awesome time. And of course, that is the doctrine of the Trinity, is that within the nature of the one God, there are three distinct and separate persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here they are in the passage. And so it tells us that when he had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, which is a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. But it could also be that this was a breaking away of the previous life that he'd lived. Not that he had lived a life that was wrong. His previous life was a perfect life. But his previous life was living in Nazareth. His previous life was living with his family. His previous life was working as a carpenter. They're in the village of Nazareth. But now it's time to move on. It's time to assume the role. It's time to become what the Father had sent him to do and to be. Messiah, Savior of the world. And so his baptism was a break from the way he'd lived in the past to the way he was going to be living the rest of his several years on the earth. That's a picture of our baptism as well. 
If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a newness. It's a different kind of life. And if a Christian goes back into some of the behaviors and attitudes of the old life, it's an anomaly. It's, it's something that doesn't fit. It's out of order. It's like the story of Augustine. Augustine, that 4th century Bible scholar, great theologian of the church. He was a notorious sinner prior to his conversion. He was converted in Rome. And not long after his conversion, which was an incredible conversion experience for him, his complete life changed. Everything about him. Well, he's walking down the street one day, and one of the prostitutes, the ladies-in-waiting, that had been intimate with Augustine in his former life, saw him walking down the street. And she recognized him and wanted to speak with him or address him. And so she said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he turned to her and he said, yes, but it is not I. And he continued walking. A new creation, a new creature, the old life, it's done. The baptism separates the two parts of our lives. B.C., A.D., Before Christ, after Christ, or AC if you want to put it that way. And if I go back into those attitudes or into those behaviors as a Christian, it's something that doesn't fit. But be careful, because there are believers who actually have chosen to go back into some of the attitudes, some of the behaviors that they did before they became believers. Their lives may have been changed and just walking strongly for years, and then all of a sudden something happens and they get careless. And they start flirting with the world again like they used to. So they dabble in this or they dabble in that, but watch out. The scripture is real clear what will happen to a person who does that. That sin that you're playing with that you're yielding your eyes to, that you're yielding your ears to, that you're yielding your hands and your feet to, that sin is very powerful and it will capture you and put cords around you and will imprison you and there will be a ball and chain around your feet and you will be in jail. You will be forced to serve sin. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? Just read Romans chapter 6. And you'll see that that's exactly what Paul warns us about. Baptism separates the old life from the new. A picture of death, burial, and resurrection. We see that also in this text, there is the anointing of Jesus. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now John the prophet had been told earlier that this is how he would recognize the Messiah. The one upon whom you see the Spirit of God descending and remaining upon him, that's the one. And so here's what happens. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus. And there he was, anointed by the Spirit of God. 
This is the moment that Jesus was empowered to do the work as Messiah Savior. In fact, the meaning of the word Christ is anointed one. And the word Messiah is only the transliteration of the Hebrew word which means anointed one. So this is when Jesus actually was anointed for his ministry as Messiah. And in one sense, you could say that this is the moment when he became the Messiah. He was always the Messiah, but this is the moment when all of the implications of what it meant to be the Messiah began right then. That's when he was empowered. And from then on, his life was under the direction and control of the Spirit of God. Guzik says in his commentary, this was not a temporary gift of the Spirit of God. John's testimony from John 1 was that when he saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain upon him, John was about, Jesus was about to begin his public ministry and he would do it in the power of the Spirit of God. So this was the anointing of Jesus. Now this is an amazing thing for you and for me. Because the Spirit of God, of course, is available to every believer as the power by which we live the Christian life. There is no living the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting and isn't it amazing that the same kind of power under which and by which Jesus operated is the same power under which and by which we operate. He was anointed by the Spirit of God. This is what gave him the ability to heal to cast out demons, to teach as he taught with such great authority, to raise people from the dead, to boldly preach the good news, to deliver captive people. It was the power of the Spirit that gave him the ability to do all of those things. And so it is with you and with me. The same kind of relationship that Jesus had with the Holy Spirit of God is the same relationship that you and I have. In other words, he walked exactly like he calls us to walk in complete dependence upon the Spirit of God. He said, well, why do you need to even bring that up? Because a lot of people have the misconception that Jesus did his miracles because he's God. And that he was acting as God when he raised Lazarus. And he was acting as God when he healed the paralyzed man or cleansed the leprous man. That was just his God duty. He flipped a little switch on the inside of him and said, okay, now it's time for God mode. And so God mode kicked in and he did what he did as God. And then, you know, he flipped the switch back off and went to bed that night. No. He was living as a human being lives. Any human being having no innate power of his own. He truly did become a human being. He emptied himself, Philippians 2 teaches us, of all of those necessary attributes of God. He set them aside in order to be a complete human. And as such, he decided, and the Father called him, 
to live a life of complete dependence upon the Father and the Spirit. And he did. He pulled it off. He was the second Adam. The first Adam had the opportunity to do the same thing the second Adam did, but the first Adam failed. The second Adam did not fail. We'll talk more about that next week. He did it. He walked in dependence upon the Father and upon the Spirit. And we can see that the Father approved of his Son. Verse 17, A voice suddenly came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Later, Jesus would say that the Father had set his seal on him. This is when it happened. The Father set his seal of approval upon his Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. A similar thing is going to be said later when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration before his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. But this is a, an important statement, an important moment. The Father's approval, a supernatural approval coming from God himself. Much like the great prophets of the Old Testament had a divine authenticating presence that came upon them. And they had encounters with God that made it be known to them and to everyone else that this one is called of God. And so this voice made it obvious to everyone this one is called, to God, called of God. This is why the disciples later preached so boldly And they said, there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Peter later would refer to the voice that he heard when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, a similar voice saying the similar thing. Saying this was the testimony that we had. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They preached boldly Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And their culture was not unlike ours. It was a culture of relativism. It was a culture that had many, many gods, many, many apparent paths to truth, many, many claims by different men and different gods, different deities for allegiance. And if you had to ask a typical Roman what truth is, they would have had the same exact response as Pontius Pilate had at the crucifixion of Jesus. Truth? What is truth? Denying that even such a thing exists. That was typical in the first century. Very much like our culture here. Very similar. But the apostles preached boldly. And they boldly proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is God's plan A, and he's God's plan A, and he's God's plan A, and God has no plan B. He's it. There's one God And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this is what they boldly proclaim. Why? How? 
because they knew the prophetic scriptures and that Jesus was fulfilling them. And they heard this voice at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And their own lives had been changed radically by this Savior. They had the testimony of their own experience. They had the testimony of external experiences, the voice of God, and they had the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. And that was enough for them. It gave them boldness. That's enough for us. That gives us boldness too. To lovingly, yet boldly and confidently proclaim Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior. And just a side note here, when we talk about boldness, we're not talking about the guy that stands on the, on the soapbox on the street corner yelling at people. That's not the picture of boldness that should come into our minds. That may be bold, but that's not the picture of boldness that should come into our minds. Boldness simply is another word for confidence. It's confidence. Confidently siding up next to the guy that we work with and saying, you know, I just want to spend some time with you at lunch if we can, and I'd like to just tell you some great news. And just have a conversation at lunchtime telling that person about who Jesus is and what he did for them. I've got great news for you that I want to share. That's, that's boldness. That's biblical boldness, confidence. Now, if you're an apostle, which means you're a preacher and means you're in the public eye and you're going to have to do this in front of a lot of people, then boldness in that context means confidence among many people. But most of us aren't called to that sort of thing. Most of us, our witness is to one or two or three at a time. And that's the way it ought to be. Confidence, boldness comes from God. We have reasons for it. Now there's another thing that we want to close with here. And that is the Father's approval of Jesus Christ. I've loved this truth. This truth has meant so much to me personally over the years. When this voice of approval came, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus had not yet done one single miracle. He had not taught one of the great teachings for which he would eventually became known, become known. He had not preached a single sermon as far as we know. He had not fulfilled or even begun to fulfill his ministry as Messiah. He had, just, he had lived a sinless life in subjection to his parents, faithfully serving God in the environment of Nazareth. That's all we know about him. We have one little snippet of his life that Luke records about the time when Jesus was 12 years old, and that's all we know. That's it. Yet, even though he had done none of those things for which he would ultimately be worshipped by you and me as we did this morning as Messiah, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What that tells me is that the Father was pleased with his Son because of who his Son was, not 
because of what his son did. The father was pleased with his son, not because of what his son did, but because of who his son was. This is my son. Now think of the implications of that. And then connect that with this little phrase that occurs in the New Testament many times, in Christ. Do you know what is true of you and me who are in Christ? We are, to God the Father, his son, as his only begotten son is his son. We have that same standing. We have that same position. And what that tells us, as we understand who we are in Christ, redeemed, chosen, called, predestined, elected, adopted, forgiven, recipients of his grace, all of those things that we are in Christ, what we are in Christ tells us that God is pleased. This is my beloved child. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Because of what we are, not because of what we do. Because of our identity, which is in Christ, not because of our productivity, which is by Christ. Now when I realize who I am in Christ and the fact that God the Father sees me this way and loves me this way, what does that motivate me to want to do? Serve Him. I want to serve the Lord. I want to be useful. I want to be productive. I want to bear fruit for His glory and for His namesake. It's the way it works. This is my beloved Son, He said, in whom I am well pleased. So our King was baptized to identify with us. Our king began to take our place even at this early stage of his ministry, which reminds us of the Hebrews 7 passage, such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. We need a king, and we've got a great option for our king. King Jesus. That's the king to choose. Human kings, they will fail. Not this king, though. He'll never fail. He is steady, and he is solid, and he is faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this time, and thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. It's quite amazing. We are so blessed to be part of the kingdom of God and part of the family of God. We're so grateful that you've created a huge transition in our lives, those of us that are in Christ. Now we have a past that we can just put aside and just say that belongs to what we were before we came to you and now we have a present and a future that's full of hope and purpose 
Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for identifying with us in your baptism, in your life, in your sufferings, in your death, in your resurrection, and your exaltation. And everything that you are for us, you are pulling us up to be with you and like you in them. Thank you for it, Lord. And as we're just in this attitude of prayer, I just have a question to ask for anyone that might be with us this morning that has not ever made this commitment to say, Jesus, you're the king. You're the king, but I haven't made you my king, and I haven't accepted you into my life as Savior and Lord, but I want to do it now. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're now convinced that this same Jesus is the Son of God, and that he did die for your sins, and that he is the only way to have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. And you're saying, I want, I want that. I want to receive forgiveness. I want a new start. I want a new life. And if you really want a new life and you want to live a different way than the way you've been living, then you can accept him into your life. The Bible says that as many as received him, he gave the power to become sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. Salvation can be yours today if you make a choice to receive him. Salvation isn't from being religious. It's not from being good. It's not from keeping the commandments. It's by receiving Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the only one that can save. And if you open your heart to receive him, you can have eternal life. How many this morning would say, that's what I want, Bill. I want right now to make Jesus my Savior and to ask him to be my Lord. I'd like you to just indicate that and show me that that's what you want by raising your hand. Just raise your hand up high. I want to have a word of prayer with you this morning. Anybody? Okay, God bless you over here on the left. Anybody else this morning? It's time for me to receive Jesus. I didn't see. Hold that hand up high. Okay, God bless you over there on the right. Okay, I see that. Thank you. Anybody else this morning? I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to have a word of prayer for you, and then I'm going to ask you to pray, those you two that raised your hands this morning. Ask you to pray and, re- and, and just pray a prayer that invites Jesus to come into your life. You guys willing to do that? Okay. Lord, I just pray that right now this would be a very special and holy moment for these two. Thank you, Lord, that they have a willingness to draw near to you and to do it publicly in front of all these people. Certainly you're pleased and we're thrilled. And we pray that right now this would be a very holy and and special moment. Let's just continue to have an attitude of prayer in this room. And you too, would you please do me a favor and stand to your feet and just pray this prayer out loud following me. God, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need forgiveness. I want to change the way I live. And I ask Jesus to come into my life. 
Be my Savior, Jesus. Be my Lord, my Master. I believe that you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead. I receive you now by faith. Change my life and help me to live for you. Amen, amen. What's your name, sister? Catherine? Okay, Catherine and Brian. Catherine and Brian, you guys. Oh, I didn't see you. What's your name? Angela. Catherine, Angela, and Brian. Well, God bless you guys. Pastor Johnny, Brian and Angela and Catherine. Pastor Johnny wants to meet with you right as soon as the service is over with. If you would, just come on straight up. Would you be willing to do that? He wants to give you a Bible and give you some just words of encouragement to help you get started. We want to see you start to grow. Being a Christian is like a, a newly planted tree. The roots go into the ground, and then as the tree is watered and fed and sunshine comes on it, the tree grows, and uh, we want you to grow in Christ. Amen? God bless you. We're so happy.